Welcome to episode 150 with my guest Ryan Sickler. This show is sponsored by NatureBox, a monthly subscription service that delivers smarter snacks straight to you. They're the real deal. No high fructose corn syrup, no hydrogenated oils, no artificial flavors or colors. Go to naturebox.com to get 50% off your first box with promo code HAPPYHOUR. It's time to get nutritionist-approved snacks that you can feel good about at naturebox.com. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Two hours of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show is not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a, I'm not a therapist. This isn't a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Go there, check it out, take surveys, see how other people filled them out, join the forum, support the show, read blogs, or as you know, just go fuck yourself. Um, let's get right into it. I want to read um, a couple of surveys. This is uh, These first few are from the Struggle in a Sentence survey. Um, this was filled out by Mary in her 20s about her anxiety. She says that feeling that there are too many people in the room and you cannot get out fast enough about her codependency. Constantly searching for someone to fill a void only to realize you may not be capable of connecting with another person on the level you wish you could and yet still searching, still reaching out to people to keep yourself afloat in your life. About her anger, a constant battle between good and evil brewing inside your mind, always trying to keep the rage beast from breaking the surface in order to remain a mirage of the happy person people think you are. Same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Dorf on Coke. He's in his 20s about his anxiety. He says, there's a small knife running up and down the center of my chest. Same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Adam C. He's in his 30s about his depression. As I cycle in and out of depression, I'm almost angry at my friends for being concerned. Why do you want to call the hospital when I was suicidal yesterday? About his love addiction, I value relationships only when they're over. About his anger issues, I don't want to forgive people who've wronged me. I want them to suffer. Sad but true. Um, this is same survey filled out by a woman who calls herself C. She's uh, between 16 and 19 about her depression. Turning the key over and over and over like maybe this time the battery won't be dead and the car will start about her anxiety, social anxiety. I'm in constant disbelief that someone as inherently embarrassing as myself could ever be allowed to exist in public. And about her anorexia, my grandmother doesn't eat, my mother doesn't eat, I don't eat. If my little sisters don't eat, I am to blame. Oh, that one is deep. And then I want to read um, this letter that I got from a listener who calls herself Boston Mom. She writes, your interview with listener Amelia really touched me. When she said having a baby was like marrying someone you never met, I nearly fell off the treadmill laughing and everyone at the gym was staring at me. As someone who suffered from postpartum anxiety and still has ambivalent feelings about motherhood, I believe this statement says it all. It took me months to develop a loving bond with my babies and until they were well past the toddler stage, I was constantly overwhelmed by them and their needs. I often felt like running away and I felt like a terrible mother. I would go to the playground and be surrounded by happy earth mothers who gushed with love and happiness and hand-prepared organic baby food. I wanted to shoot them all in the head. Now at 8 and 11, my daughters are the delight of my life, but let's face it, 
babies suck, literally and figuratively. Oh God, I wish I didn't need to take meds. Flat out fucking auditory hallucinations. I would literally wake up running from my bed. I'm afraid that I'll pass my anger on to my son. I thought the gunman was my father. Afraid of not being able to make a living. Um, that's probably going to break his heart if he hears it, but that's that's the truth. They committed him to Bellevue. There was this fear that if I feel this pain, I wish someone could see what was going on and just help me, that it will kill me and I will die and I will drown. You can't think your way out of a thinking problem. And I cried the way that a baby cries. Cried like an animal. It makes me so mad at myself that I do that. The burden of perfectionism. And that's when I got to therapy. Let's talk about that. Because I was like, fuck it, I'm alive. I don't give a shit about anything. You are a shining example of what is best about human beings. I'm worried that the uh, Russian militia is coming over the hill. I know that, uh, but uh, Alice, how you feeling? I'm pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs> like I'm here with uh, with Ryan Sickler. Is it it's pronounced Sickler or Sick Fuck? <laughs> it is actually Sick Fuck. Yes, uh, Sickler. Ryan Sickler. Yes. Yeah. Um, thank you for for contacting me. I think who knows this might go terribly, but I have the feeling it's gonna it's gonna go great. Well, I appreciate you allowing me in. Yes. Uh, I watched uh, a short that you have on your website last night, which is based on a true story called. The- about two guys who argued over James Brown's actual height, and did they shoot each other? They did. They did not die. We faded out just as as I think Tom's character did die in it. But yeah, the uh, the true story is both guys got together to watch Alabama Auburn, which you would think would be the, <laughs> the fight. reason. Yes, and somehow escalated into uh, an altercation about James Brown's actual height that then broke out in. Gunfire, return gunfire, and an arrest. Yeah, that's a true story. It's so awesome. But that's the the thing about that was uh, you you only for crazy stories like that you usually just get the headline and what happened. You don't get the behind right. the story of the story. And we just decided that we were going to create our version of it's how this shit went. It's down. hilarious. Thank you. It's I hilarious. That. Yeah. Uh, and people can check out your website, uh, S-I-C-K-L-E-R, RyanSickler dot, dot com. Uh, I didn't look through much after that. I just kind of wanted to get a feel of your, of your sense of humor, which, and I'm sorry that I don't, um, I'm not familiar with your comedy. I'm so isolated from the comedy scene these, these days. Um, no need to apologize. Okay. I'm isolated from my comedy. All right. Yeah. Oh, we, good. We're in good hands here. Good. We got that in common. <laughs> Uh, you were raised where? Uh, I was originally born in Baltimore, uh, raised in Maryland. We moved out of the city probably eh, about four years old, out to the county, uh, when my parents had their third kid. I'm, I'm a twin, so they weren't expecting double out of the gate. I think it was uh, quickly got crowded in that little row home and then boom, out to the suburbs for a little more room. Baltimore is an interesting city, man. It is. Uh, have you been? You've I haven't, time, but no. uh, you know, time I see something that's set there that feels realistic, I I feel like um, I don't know. Baltimore is. Uh, it's got a lot of flavor, but it seems also like a really kind of almost like bordering on Atlantic City in terms of the desperation and the sadness and corruption. Yeah. Yes, it's uh, it's a beautiful town. Um, but it is, it's a hard town. It's a hard town. I mean, it just is the, the homicides, life on the street. Um, 
if you I don't know if, how familiar you are with uh, David Simon and Ed Burns, but they they spent my favorite show ever, The Wire. Okay, they, they, I think it's the best drama ever. I and and I'm biased, but I will agree with you. Uh, and Homicide, Life on the Street was a, it wasn't uh, it was critically acclaimed. It wasn't um, you know it was popular, but it wasn't NYPD Blue popular or Law and Order or Law and Order exactly. Um, and then they had another a, a short mini series called The Corner that Charles Dutton I loved hosted. it. And it was based off of the book they wrote, which is, you know, novel thick. Uh, and they spent a year living in these burnt-out row homes with drug addicts and getting to know their stories and uh, how they lived. And then it just spawned everything. I- I'm such a fan. I've even watched uh, Generation Kill and Treme. I just I love the work they do. Yeah, it's so detailed. That's what I love. And and they give the viewer so much credit for being able to put things together, to use their brain, to engage. I you know, I almost wear the rewind button watching the wire out because the language is so authentic. They don't change it to make it more understandable or palatable for us suburbanites. Um and I and I love that cuz it's you feel like you're transported to a to a different place, and I mean that's the best television is where you're like you forget your life. It, it is, and and not only that, the other thing I like about it is that when you hear these words, you're like, what are they talking about? That's probably the same way they felt when they first started investigating these people, and they had to learn the same way the viewer is learning. And then once you get up and running, you're off and running. Mm-hmm. And you're like, okay, I know who Avon Barksdale is, and I know he's running this crew over here. And after a while, you're like, oh, wow, I put all that together. And you know, once you see them lay it out on a chart in a shot, you're like, oh, I'm with you. I got all that right now. And, and the underlying empathy they have for people even who commit terrible crimes, they're, that to me is the ultimate sign of success when you're creating something is that all characters have dark and and light in them did you have a favorite character Uh, um you know i was a big fan of uh stringer bell and avon barksdale and uh, uh, even some of the the guys that were slinging that that were the lower level guys um you know omar was a great character yes that's my favorite yeah uh it was it was all good and some of the cops were great too yeah and and i love the um the how they show you the level of hierarchy corruption everything that occurs from the little hoppers and the little you know all the way up to the avon barksdale who i mean stringer bell who's in college and putting up the front for at the funeral home so they can have this going and then the you know same dirty and corrupt thing going on in and it all makes logical sense yes. which yeah i love when they put the, the effort into story well speaking of stories let's let's get into your story what what was it like um so three kids total three kids total three boys and what was it like living in a row house in, in baltimore do you have many memories of it before you moved down into the County or country or whatever i have very few memories of the early one uh We'll get to it later, but I eventually moved in with my grandmother who lived in a row home, and I have very uh, explicit memories of those days. So, uh, row home out to the county, back to a row home in Baltimore. Just outside the city in a row home, yeah, Baltimore County, right across the line there. Um, But we had moved out to the suburbs, two boys at first. uh, I have a fraternal twin brother. He's four minutes older. Uh, My mom and dad moved out to the county. Did he accomplish anything in those four minutes? (laughs) I always say I'm older. I just came out second. I was conceived <laughs> first, delivered second. Um, 
but he didn't accomplish anything. I get, you know, he became their first. That's what he became. That's pro- yeah. that. You know what? It's a very interesting question. I have never thought about that 240 second head start he had. And it may be the answer to everything and nothing all at once. Were either of you, did either of you feel like there was a favorite? Um, Not until my younger brother got there. Then there was a clear favorite uh, from my mother. My father was always even, um, but but he had his moments with each of us. You know what I mean? Like he really picked his spots and picked them well, I have to say. Uh, But my mother was always... um, my younger brother's name's Todd. Always Todd first. Derek was my twin brother, who she was like, yeah, you can come, you can leave. And then me was just, don't want any part of this kid. And and has admitted to disliking me since I was four. Wow. So, I, you know, and I didn't find that out until later um, that she had actually disliked me that early on. I mean, I knew it. I wasn't a dumb kid. Kids are, kids are way more intelligent, uh, may not possess the vocabulary to explain it but your feelings are there and you know and i knew from jump that my mother just wasn't a good person and my father was and i couldn't have been more thankful to have not only him but his mother and her sisters my great aunts were a huge um supportive network that made us realize and believe that you know, and, and it was the same lesson taught with race. Just because there's this one bad person doesn't mean that all of these are bad. So my father would always say, look, don't, you know, don't dislike women. Don't respect women and put us into um, an environment of strong, independent women, uh, family women who um, would tell you, you know, hey, that over there is wrong. Just so you know, there's this is the way it should be. And it was a that probably saved your soul oh, and saved everything. So many ways. It was a beyond a healthy balance and and save. Yeah, I started to uh, with my joke uh, interrupt you. You were starting to say something about your brother when he when he came out first. Would do you remember what your thought was? And no. I interject. I I can't resist. That's okay. Uh, I can't either. Uh, okay. Don't worry about. It. Uh, <laughs> So, do you have any idea what it was that that turned your mom against you? I don't. At such an early age, I, I really don't. And and you know, I've gone to therapy in and out for you know, as a kid, as a teenager, uh, later in life. Um, I just actually, for the last year, I have not gone, and I had been going for about three years straight, and I just wanted to take a break. Uh, Jay Larson's a really good friend of mine. He's another comedian who I host uh, my podcast with. Uh, Crab Crab Feast? Yes, the Crab Feast, which plays into all this as well. Um, but he also goes, and we talk about it. And I told him, you know, it's I just wanted to take a break and also take what I've been taught and start applying it on my own without having to come in. And, you know, I know that's something that I will always want. And I'll always do, but I don't always need it every day was or there, every week. I was there say. something specific about therapy that was kind of wearing on you that you wanted the break from? <sighs> yeah, honestly, yes. Uh, I felt like I had worked a lot of stuff out. I have figured things out enough that I wanted to get back out into the real world, so to speak, and start working on them and applying them. But the other thing was, I just started to feel as if um, I was just coming in complaining about things. Mm-hmm. Um, I found myself getting in a rut just, well, this and this and work and blah. And I was like, "That's this isn't what 
you know, therapy is about. Mm-hmm. I've I've reached. I I started finding myself looking for things that were negative. Yeah, negative and and were nothing. Well, I don't need to worry. What the hell do I need to bother that guy about this for? You know, this isn't something I need a professional to tell me. I know what the hell to do for this. It was just also a. Um, I wanted it to be more than just a sounding board at that point, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, so give me some snapshots from, from childhood that were seminal, painful, um, you know, awesome. Uh, either either one. Things that left an impression on you. Um, I'll start with uh, my mother because that's where the root of my everything is. Um, so my mom, you know, I, I remember you know all she was she was an abusive person she was physically abusive mentally abusive emotionally abusive um every, thank god not sexually abusive every abusive but um and <laughs> bless you and when we my parents first started having uh marital problems when we were in third grade and when i say we obviously my twin brother and i my, my other brother was just about 4 years younger than us and Every, you know, we knew she had cheated on him and and um, she was leaving and we took it. We're like, what what are you talking about? You're leaving. And I remember I, I took it the hardest when she left at first because it was just this crate. Like, what are you talking about? And um, that has to be inconceivable to a, a three or four year old, especially when you're being told you, you, you don't know what's going on, but you know enough. And you're just being told, we'll tell you when you're older, we'll tell you when you're older, which is a running theme for the uh, elders in our family. And um, did you blame yourself? No, never blame myself. And my father was very, very made it very clear. This is has zero to do with you guys. The, the divorce yeah. or separation um, the abuse clearly was something she was going through and that, which is what I've learned later, you know, like, Oh, I never bothered to consider what you, how you felt and what you were going through. and just always looked at you as this asshole basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so they decided they were going to work on it. Didn't happen. They divorced and we were forced to move with our mother. This was the summer of fifth and sixth grade. And all we wanted to be was with our father. My youngest brother was truly torn. My twin brother and I were both like, we're all about dad, you know? And I remember he dropped us off one weekend and he just started crying. And it was a, it was maybe the second time I saw my father cry. And I I just, it just felt like seeing Superman cry. Like this guy's dropping his kids off to a woman that doesn't care about them or him. But this is what the court says they have to do right It now. had to be heartbreaking for him. And it, it had to be. It had to be. And we would talk. And this is, you know, obviously before cell phones and all that stuff. So uh, email. So we would talk on the phone nightly. I mean, it was always, always checking in, always asking, and always being a dad, too. Like, are you doing well in school? It wasn't just like, what are you guys doing today? I miss you. It was also put that aside and let me be a parent as well. Um, Did your mom have any kind of addiction or substance abuse issues? No, no addiction, no substance abuse, no... I don't know enough about her past. I know that she did not have a good relationship with her mother, who I was also close with, but not as close as my father's mother. Um, And her mom even lived with us at the time my mother did all this. Did she strike you as abusive? Not at all. But she did have a daughter. My mother had a sister who died of 
I don't know if it was during or just after birth. Uh, there was something happened, and she she passed. And did she accomplish anything? Her, her? <laughs> no, no, the, the one that died just after birth. There's a window. She Your died after is... giving birth. After giving. Oh, birth. she did. Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> I guess she accomplished having a child. Uh, and then, um. It clearly affected my grandmother. I mean, it it seemed to be that was obviously more of her favorite child. And if she could have picked one to go, it wouldn't have been the one that left. I see. And um, but my grandfather, her husband had passed before we were born. So I don't know if they was double bad. You know what I mean? I don't sure. know that because we're not close enough to have those conversations. Um, in between her hitting you. In between the beatings of lunchboxes and whatnot. Yeah. So, would she hit you with a lunchbox? Oh, my mother would grab whatever was near her lunchbox, phone books, those wallpaper, old, remember that old uh, blade you would cut a wallpaper with? She'd hit you with the, anything, anything. And, and my mother just, she was a bully. I mean, she just was a bully. She wanted to beat someone. And even if, even if my brothers did it, I, I would get the beating. Closed fist punches, the whole nine. She was, she was, I don't know what she was taking out on me, but, she she had her way until I got a little bit older and I could defend myself. Uh, what would you, you know, the, one of the things that fascinates me about abuse is how the person, you know, be it sexual, mental, emotional, physical, is what, how the person justifies it to themselves, what they say, what they're, what would she say anything when she, when she would be beating you? Just. No, nothing in particular, just that, you know, I wasn't going to do whatever I was doing that she didn't like. It was never, I mean, no, I would just get beat, wow. you know? I mean, if shoes weren't placed in the corner properly, it wasn't get your shoes over there. It was, I'm going to come over here and beat you and tell you about the damn shoes, get them in the corner. Clearly, whatever you're beating me about and saying is not what the fuck the problem. Am I allowed to cuss? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. It's not what the problem is, but I'm going to beat you to get this message into you. Were you just constantly on edge? Constantly on edge. Um, but also, you know, I, I, my grandmother couldn't get over it. My grandmother was, my dad's mom and my mom's mom, they were both moms. You know what I mean? They were, they didn't get it, you know? And they would, they were old school where they would say, well, she's your mother. And I'm like, yeah, but she's not acting like my mom. I mean, this is a woman who tells me on a daily basis, I hate you. I wish you were dead. I hate you. Oh, I wish you were dead. You're a loser. You'll never be anything. You're a piece of shit. Get the fuck out of here. I want starting you dead. at three or four or uh, not no. that, but okay. that would, that came starting in middle school. I'd say sixth grade when they split and we went with her. That's when it got, that's when it got. Be, that's when it really started to get aggressive um and it carried through to seventh grade and i remember i mean it's not funny but it is um so she i can't remember what it was we were driving home from school and she said something she said she wasn't going to make us dinner and i was like are you you're serious you're not going to make us dinner and we got out of the car she punched me in my face and it was winter and i remember because there was snow on the ground and I couldn't believe I just took a closed fist shot to the face. Now, I had taken them from my brother a bunch. So at that point, I could handle myself enough. But I was blown away. And I didn't cry or anything. I just grabbed her keys out of her hand. And I snapped the key ring. And then I threw them and scattered them all in the snow in the yard. And I thought, you know what? That'll give us at least a solid half hour to calm down, play some video games. She'll be out there. 
and she came in and she was beating the shit out of me and I just I went to shove her off of me and there was an ottoman right behind her that I didn't plan and I mean she went down and inside <laughs> I was like yes and at the same time I was like fuck <laughs> and she got up and I was expecting the, a bull rush and she just looked at me and I think that was the moment when she realized my son's getting bigger and stronger maybe I shouldn't mess with him so much and she called my father who was at work he worked at uh national airport which is now ronald reagan he was the crew chief of uh for pan am airlines and um he said put him on the phone and i got on the phone expecting him to yell at me and he's like is she near you and i said no and he started laughing and he said listen to me man don't fucking hit your mom i was like dad i didn't hit her i was just shoving her away from me he's like i know i get it but she's fucking scared of you now and i was like good finally good and that's when I started to to fight back. You know, I I would come home from school. If we left like a little plastic mug of Kool Aid that we had drank in the sink, it would there nothing would be said to you. It would just be thrown at your face. So you're sitting watching TV, and this cup is flying, trying to hit you in your face. And the one time it, it did shoot by my face, I, I mean, I was like, and I grabbed it, and I I intentionally threw it back, not near her, but on the cabinet, so it was plastic, and it shattered. And she looked at me, and I was like. Playing baseball, pitched this year, mom, because she never came to any games. I was like, "Stop throwing shit, stop wow. throwing shit," and it just became. But I, but I, I, I survived all of it because of humor. Like my brother and I would lay in bed at night and we'd be like, "Do you believe that shit today?" Like they almost hit me in my face, and we would laugh about it. That must have saved. It. Comedy you was emotionally. Yeah. Comedy was everything, everything, and it it was all. But that all goes back again to my father my mother you know my mother didn't come to get sporting events we, we were all involved in sports i don't know how my father did it i don't know how he went to work i mean where we live to dc is almost an hour one way this dude drove back and forth double shifts i don't know how he made every school event every sporting event you know my mother barely worked when we were in elementary school and uh, even in middle school and high school, she could have come to whatever she wanted to and never did. So, so actually then my parents decided they were going to try to get back together. My father was all about his kids and he was like, let's just make this work for them. So in seventh, they, they, they spent a year apart, um, got back together in seventh grade and it quickly didn't, six, eight months, I think that might've been over with, but I think my dad knew and had to plan. And he was like, I'm buying you out of your share of the house boys and i are going to live here you go wherever you want to go and to her to her so she went and stayed wherever she stayed here and there and then uh it was ninth grade and my father they had to go to um court for custody and my father said to me do you want to go and i was like i, I don't want to go mom's told me for years she doesn't want me i don't need to go sit in court and listen to that i'm going to go to the beach with my friends and my two brothers went with my grandmother and one of her sisters, my aunt Marguerite, and they sat in court and, you know, the judge was a, a female and she said to my father, you know, what do you want? And my father said, I, I want my kids. I love my kids. But if you're not going to allow me to have them, I'd rather not split them up. I think they need each other, especially if you're going to, you know, award her custody. And then the judge asked my mother and my mother said, you know, I want Todd Derek can come if he wants. I do not want Ryan. And this woman's not just a judge. This is, this is a mom, maybe a grandmom, I might be assuming. 
And she said, in all the years I've done this, I've never heard a mother say, I don't want one of my kids or one can come if they don't want to come. I don't like I don't process that. It's against nature. And she awarded my father custody and made my mother pay him child support. And this is 89. I don't hear that now. This woman was bothered by it. And my father came home and he was laughing. I was like, there's no way. He's like, I'm getting child support. And I was like, well, Did good she for pay you, it? man. She paid the first one. So this this is a woman who, I mean, we could talk forever. I I think I think we got a pretty a pretty good idea yeah. of. I reg- There's one thing I regret that was a moment. Um, it's about maybe eight years ago. I called her and I forgave her. And I don't know what was going on. There was, you know, I like to try to pay attention to the universe and signs and, you know, little things. And I just kept seeing all this stuff about forgiveness and this and this and this. And I called her and I just said, you know, look, I, I, I just want you to know I'm not speaking for dad or, or my brothers or on behalf of the family. This is me and you. And I just want you to know I forgive you. I don't think you should have to walk this earth thinking that one of your children hates you. And I said, in actuality, to me, to, in order to love someone, you have to have a strong, positive relationship. And in order to hate someone, you have to have a strong, negative relationship. And we have no relationship. So I don't hate you. I can't hate you. And she's like, thank you so much, and blah, blah, blah. And next day, I go to a Dodger game, and I catch a, f- a foul ball. And I'm like, oh, shit's going to change. And I give it to this little girl sitting next to me with her parents. And <clears throat> um, and it changed nothing. It changed nothing. Nothing happened. And when I went to therapy, one of the things I learned is that you can't give forgiveness to someone who isn't asking for it. That what I'm really doing is making it okay for me. That was more for me than it was for her because it made no fucking difference. I mean, nothing, nothing. In other words, your relationship with her, nothing, nothing, nothing changed, changed. nothing changed. And, um, yeah, that was, did the doubters do any better? Nah, they sucked too, man. (laughs) I thought I'd bring them some good luck, but they sucked that year. So, Oh, if I could tell you a very quick backstory of a, a blueprint story, I'll call it. Uh, when I was about nine, we had uh, something called Super TV back then in Maryland. It was early cable, and after a certain maybe 6 p.m., you got an HBO and a couple of other channels. It was a box no bigger than this here, and you press a little button on it. And I had snuck downstairs, and I was laying in the hallway, and my father was in the living room. I'm behind him watching over his shoulder, and I saw... This movie um, with Richard Pryor called Bustin' Loose, if you remember that. And I saw kids on the screen, so I thought, oh, well, there's kids. I'm probably allowed to watch this. And then I saw Richard Pryor, and I laughed my ass off, and I got caught. And my father said, get in here. And I was like, oh, shit. He's like, sit down. And he said, finish watching this with me. And that was it. That was where it was born for me. He would call me out of bed late at night and show me old Saturday Night Live sketches and everything. So he planted that seed of humor and release and funny and comedy and da- he introduced me to Dangerfield and Carlin and Cosby and on and on. So fast forward to finally getting to live with him and finally my mother's out of the picture. We're all together. He's working hard and uh, he has he, he says to me he's having heart trouble and he has a doctor's appointment. And he said to me, I was 16, 10th grade, 
<clears throat> and he said, um, he came to me at night and he's like, I want you to drive me to the doctor appointment tomorrow. And I was like, and I hated to miss school. I, I was, I was a B student. I wasn't a straight A student, but I just fucking hated makeup work. Mm-hmm. And I was like, all right. You know, I never questioned why not Derek, why not, you know, anyone else. Um, so they went to school and I took my father, we picked up his mother, my grandmother on the way and we went to the doctor. And while we're there, the doctor says to him, you're having a heart attack right now. I've already called Johns Hopkins, get over there. They're going to admit you. They'll be waiting out front. And that was when I learned that I was always under the impression that a heart attack was clutch your chest and drop. I didn't realize until then that the shortness of breath, the sweating, the numbness, all those were, you're having a heart attack. Um, so I drive over and um, <laughs> we're about a, a block from the hospital and we're at a stoplight and I have my blinker on. My dad's like, now he's grown, he grew up in the city and he's like, it's not this left. And I'm like, dad, it's this left. He's like, Ryan, it is not this left. I'm having a heart attack. It is the next left. I'm pretty sure it's this left, dad. And it is amazing to me that he was, he let me make the mistake. He's like, okay, it's this left. And I make the left and immediately I re- I know it's the, I'm like, oh, and now we have to go back around a block and he is pounding the fucking dashboard. Like, and I thought about that not long ago and I was like, what a great dad. Like my dad let me be wrong to learn a fucking lesson. He's having a heart attack and he knew we get him in, they rush him up. He's plugged up in tubes. You know, it's, it's, it was overwhelming to see this, this happen. And then we would visit him in the hospital. He was there for, I want to say it was about a week. They kept him maybe four or five days. And then when they released him, my aunt Marguerite, my grandma's sister lived in downtown Baltimore so we decided we were going to do Thanksgiving at her place so we didn't have to drive all the way back. And so all of us, the whole family, gets together there. We have this great Thanksgiving. We go home Sunday night. Um, and for some reason, I think because it was a holiday, we had off on Monday from school. So Tuesday we were going back. And that night my mother calls, and she's not going to have the ch- child support check. And my father gets worked up, and he gets pissed off. Then he gets a call that we were the blame my brother and I for this high school party that we were not the blame for and he just was like you know why am I getting this call you know just worked he's like I need to relax and it was midnight and I was my brothers were already in bed and I'm walking down the hallway to go to bed and for some reason I stopped and I turned around and I looked at him just laying on the, the love seat watching tv and I went to bed and in the morning, my younger brother had got up to go to the bathroom. And as he was coming out of the bathroom, he looked into my father's room and said he saw him sort of like laying on the bed and didn't think he was breathing. So he came right in and woke us up. He's like, I don't think dad's breathing. And we, of course, we shot in there. And sure enough, he was dead. He had been he had died overnight at some point. Um, it was crazy because uh, he's laying on his back, <clears throat> excuse me, shirtless. And he's sort of, if you can picture getting into your side of the bed and you're sitting on the bed and then you just laid back. So your legs are sort of off the bed still a little. And you could see blood in his body had settled. So if you were to draw a horizontal line through from the middle of the body down and right away we run in and, 
you know, I were one of my brothers went and got the neighbor. He came over. He's like, I can't tell if that's his heart or my heart. You know, we're all mm. freaking out. And I thought I heard gurgling. I tried to clear his throat. Like I kept a level head. And then I just realized this, it's nah, he's dead. And, um, I closed his eyes for the last time. We covered him up. Um, and he must've had a massive heart. He's a little bit of blood on his foot. I think maybe spit some up. He probably went to lay down as he wasn't feeling well. No idea if he ever yelled out in the middle of the night. None of us heard anything. Um, and then, you know, we call 911 and they come over and they tell us that we can't take your dad's body because he's been dead for a while. We have to call the coroner. So now we're in the house with our father's body in the in his bedroom. And here comes his brother. He had one brother. Here comes our uncle over. And then there's a woman uh, and husband too that played a major role. I consider her my mom. Her name's Sandy Patterson, uh, sweetest lady. She was a friend of ours' mom. She was that mom in a neighborhood that was, you know, a mom. Like that was like the Norma Arnold of our time. And um, they came over, and and uh, we had someone had called my mother, and I guess she returned a call, and I was sitting next to the phone. And I picked up, and I just said, "Dad's dead," and she freaked out. Someone from her work brought her priest came in we were we were raised catholic gave last rites these are all things i didn't know and then they asked us to step out on our deck while they carried our father's body out in a body bag and i just have i i can't help myself i had to look in i peeked in through the curtains i saw it i watched it and as we're standing out there my mother's friend the lady that drove her up touched me on the shoulder and she said you know you really need to give your mother a chance and that was the wrong fucking moment <laughs> to pick that to say to me and i turned around and before i could say anything my uncle grabbed her both of them was like you need to fucking just go so they take him away and i remember before they did i remember we covered him up and my brother derek just collapsed on him and just I mean, let out this wail and just was like, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to us? And inside me, I knew, you know, I felt the wrong one had gone. You know, the only one that cared is now dead. And I knew we were going to be okay. I knew, just had this feeling in me like, we'll, we'll, we will be okay. It's you were 16 suck. at I that was 16, point? yeah. Um, and then after that, that's when we had that moment of living with my grandmother from, you know, basically December. It's crazy. I don't know who the fuck thought of this, but he died on November 27th. Um, he was laid out on the 28th and the 29th, and he was buried on November 30th, which is my younger brother's 13th birthday. I don't know why they wouldn't just wait till the first. So we had a wake slash we had a wake with a cake that's what i should fucking say <laughs> a wake with a cake we had a wake with a fucking birthday cake and we were like who in the hell who's in charge of this fucking bus here like what are you doing why are we doing this can't we can we do this tomorrow but they thought it was a good idea so that was what went down um we have a, we have a word for that on the podcast awfulsome <laughs> That's that's great. That is exactly what it was. A whole lot of awfulsome. And um, then from like, you know, December through February, my grandmother stayed with us in the house where my father died and she didn't drive. And my mother has known my grandmother before we were even born. She knows she doesn't drive. And we're stuck in this house. And we thankfully had just started driving so we could get her to the grocery store, bank, whatever errands she needed. 
And when my mother came over, it was just after Thanksgiving, and she, um, she said, um, you know, if you got, what do you want for Christmas or whatever? And I said, I don't want anything from you, but this is what I want. I know she had not paid my father. And I said, I want you to give that child support money for this month to grandma so that we can go get groceries and gas and things that we need. And my mother in front of my grandmother looked at me and she said, do you really think you'll ever see that money? And that was the first time I said, fuck in front of my grandmother. And I looked at my mother and I said, fuck you. And I walked out of the house and my grandmother never said a word to me about that never was the grandmother your dad's mom yeah yeah and she was just blown away by that just like wow and then um we were able to stay with my grandmother until february and then the state made us you know it was either move with my grandmother you know 40 minutes away and be around no none of our network of friends who were all we had at this point because we don't even have this mother and they since she was next of kin and we were all minors, my father got uh, a social security that went to all to her and we had to move into this little one bedroom apartment. The three of us shared a, a bedroom. Uh, my twin brother and younger brother had bunk beds and I had a twin bed next to them in one little room and she got the social security check and my brother, my twin brother and I would get 20 bucks a week and my younger brother would get 10. And meanwhile, this thing's for, you know, a few thousand, a couple thousand dollars a month. And, um, she took out a PO box because we would get home from school before she would from work. And since our names were on that check, if we were to sign it, we'd get the money. And she wanted to make sure we did not get that money. And she took a PO box out just for that so that she could go get that and have control of that. I mean, you want to talk about bitter. I mean, not only bitter that our dad just died, but now we're living with the parent we don't want to live with and that we don't even like you. I mean, we're fucking riled up. And now we're 16, not 8. So we certainly have something to say. We certainly are not scared to let you know. And um, how, would, how would that that anger express itself outside of being in your mom's presence Sports. I was just going to say, I, I can't imagine how close you must, like if somebody would disrespect you on the soccer field, how much you wanted to throw down. Maryland is a very aggressive area. I cannot tell you how many fistfights I've been. I've been in a lot of fistfights, and I've never started one. I'm proud to say that. I've never bullied. I've never started. I haven't won them all, but I haven't started any of them. And um, we played soccer we were thrown out of every indoor arena in Maryland. That is no joke. We played outdoor winter soccer in February when it was like six degrees. Like you would cut your knee and it would just freeze. It wouldn't even bleed. It would just stop. And, um, yeah, we would, we wrestled in high school. So we, what we, a perfect sport yeah. for that aggression. And I mean, we took it out on people. We really took it out on people again. Not the, I mean, I didn't start till high school, so I wasn't great, but I was good. And, it was, I, w I would have to say, looking back on it, it's a good question, because I would say we used appropriate outlets. We, we didn't go out and vandalize. We didn't go out and beat people, random people up and, you know, um, do anything. I've never been arrested, knock on wood. I've been handcuffed, but talked my way out of that one. Uh, but a lot of aggression, a lot of aggression, yeah. And we lived in this little apartment, and my mother had a boyfriend at the time, and she would just leave. And we, she would come home on Sundays only, do her laundry, grab a few things, maybe there an hour and a half, two hours, and bounce again. And we were like, you were leaving two 16-year-olds home with a 13-year-old. Our father just died. 
Like, we're responsible for getting not only ourselves, this kid to school every day. We're 16. What the fuck do we know? We don't know anything, you know? And we raised ourselves. We raised each other. I shouldn't say ourselves. We raised each other. We got my brother to school every day. We signed his permission slips. We made sure, you know, I I got in his ass when he told me he didn't want to go to college. Now he's a scientist for the government. So, I mean, we really... Um, helped each other and we had friends that I'm still in touch with today very close that would come over every night and their parents were okay with it they knew we weren't if we were getting into anything it was normal shit and we they weren't gonna have to get a phone call in the middle of the night that anyone was arrested dead shot and um, I asked them now they all have kids now and I'm like if the same situation presented itself, would you let your kids? And they just—they're like, hell no, I would not let my kids do it. I'm like, well, yeah, you guys had good parents. You had good parents, and it was so helpful to us because it was—it was what we needed. We needed to be surrounded by our friends. We had no one else, and um, anyone else was, you know, a drive away, uh, a good a thirty minute drive away, not just someone down the street. So it. It ended up really being a, a crazy, ugly slash good support system, and uh, under er- ugly circumstances, I should say. On our senior night, at, uh, we were we were really good at soccer. We were on the high school team, both of us, and it was um, they called senior night, and the parents walk you out to midfield. We had no parents to walk us out, but guess who shows up for the first time ever to any game? And both of us, my brother and I, were both like bullshit, mom. Nope, and she got in her car, yelled, and drove away. And they they gave us each a cheerleader, two cheerleaders to walk on our arms. <laughs> we were like, "I ah, will take this." That's we'll take awesome. This. <laughs> I can't imagine how emotionally overwhelmed your mom must have felt about whatever demons she had in her to be so incredibly abusive. I. I I, I wish I had the answers to it. I've stopped trying to figure out what it was for her and what it all was for me. And then, um, when we turned 18, we, my brother and I turned 18 in March of 91 and we were graduating in June and I got on the phone with, uh, the social security and I said, look, we're 18 now. This is what's been going on. I was on hold for an hour and they came back and they were like, wow. And I was like, let's get, let's make this happen. I had them cut the check to me and my brother individually only my younger brother was still a minor, so that went to my mother. When my mother found that out, she fucking snapped. And she had told us anyway, once we graduated, we were out in the street. She didn't care. And June, sometime in June of 91, we graduated. And on July 3rd, 1991, we threw the biggest fucking party that the neighborhood <laughs> has ever seen. And then on July 4th, we were out in the street. And the funny thing is I had... I had during that uh, phone call, when I called my mother and forgave her, she said, you know, I think everyone deserves a second chance. And I said, I agree. When you got married to dad and divorced, that was, and back together, that was chance number two. Dad dies and we're forced to move into your place. Chance number three. We'll get to chance number four and five if we have enough time. And I was like, no one deserves that many chances. Second, maybe even a third, sure. But why do you deserve any more than that? You had unbelievable opportunity to to, to be with your children and, and to be a mom, and you just passed on it every single time. So always, always more about her friends. 
Um, my father would always invite her to the Oriole games when we were kids, and she would never come. And as soon as he died, we all went down with a bunch of high school friends, and guess what we saw sitting in the upper deck? We were like, you got to be fucking kidding me right now. So what was your emotional life like as a kid? You know, you, you let the aggression out in sports. You had your, your friends. But, I mean, on a certain level, the, this had to injure injure you i mean what were what were some of the unhealthy coping mechanisms or self-talk um well i didn't i've never been into drugs and i'm thank or alcohol for i drink a little and i smoke weed um but i've never dabbled in anything beyond that and i didn't even start smoking weed till i was almost out of college um i would have to certainly say uh girls were certainly an outlet um plus you know they they felt bad for you and a lot of sympathy for them sweet little girls and uh you're in high school and you're just like yep i'll take all of it so i did was it was that just a means to an end or did the did the sympathy feel good the sympathy felt good but also i knew it wasn't going to be anything that was going to last long you know and um Honestly, it was, it really was just sports. It was sports. I shouldn't say just, it was sports and it was, um, bonding with the family members that were close to my father. And then it was dating. I mean, my brother was into like Derek was into cars and I was just into sports and girls. And, um, I just enjoyed the company. And also the truth is, um, and it's one of the things I love about stand-up, too. It, it, it also saved me. It's, it's therapy. You have a captive audience that listens to what you say. And um, I guess I enjoyed meeting new people and being able to tell my story again and again. And one of the other things I learned about therapy is it is repetition. And it helps. Um, and that certainly helped. It certainly helped to be able to, not only that, too, but girl, girlfriend's moms loved me. They all loved me. They all thought I was a sweet, good kid. So it was nice to sit down with, again, moms and women who were older, my mom's age, who were nothing like her. And I just, I soaked it in and I soaked it up and I loved it. I loved it. And that was, that was really, um, I'm I'm fortunate I didn't go because I've always been proud, of not only myself, but my brothers, too, that we could have been a statistic. So we could have been the kids that society would have said, well, it's because of this. And we just didn't want to fucking be those kids. Oh, you know what that sound means. It's time to give one of our sponsors a little bit of love. Uh, I want to talk about Nature Box. Each month you get a box of awesome snacks and not just any snacks. These have no high fructose corn syrup, no hydrogenated oils. No artificial flavors or colors. They're smarter snacks. Um, they sent me a package of a variety of flavors, and this is amazing. They they have. I went to the website, and they have over a hundred different snacks to choose from. Really incredible combinations of flavors and textures. You can get sweet. You can get savory. Um, dried fruits, whole wheat fig bars, all kinds of granola. Um, and if you want, you can get a rotating surprise box uh, each month. Different sizes are available. And the ones that they sent us uh, that I really dug, uh, my my wife loved the citrus chipotle chickpeas. And I'm a huge fan of the oat bran dipping sticks. That's right, D-I-P-P-I-N apostrophe. And sticks is spelled S-T-I-X. Um, and the, my favorite is the dark cocoa almonds. Holy mother of God. 
So if you want to check out NatureBox, which I highly recommend, uh, go to naturebox.com with the promo code happy hour and get up to 50% off. Not 10, not 20, 50% off your first box. Uh, it's time to get snacks that you can feel good about. Naturebox.com, promo code happy hour. Our other sponsor I want to give some love to, uh, we've had them before and we welcome them back, is uh, Daily Burn. It's the online uh, website where they have workout videos featuring a huge variety of programs from Tabata to interval training to yoga. It's super convenient. You can decide whether or not you want to work with or without equipment uh, with programs ranging from 15 minutes to an hour. Um, if you're obsessive, you could just you could go for four hours. You could you could completely close your calendar up and say, uh, I'm going to work out until I have zero percent body fat and zero percent friends. You can access your workout from anywhere. You can connect across multiple devices like Roku, iPad, iPhone, and pretty soon PS3 and Xbox. So, uh, and just for uh, mental illness happy hour users, get the first 30 days free when you go to dailyburn.com slash happy hour. Daily Burn, the best fitness anywhere. What, what was your view? Did you Did you believe in God or anything up to that point? And if so, after your dad died, did that change? Uh, great question. I was raised Catholic. I did believe in God. I believed it, it. I guess when my father died, that's when I started questioning it. Uh, but I still believed. But I was just like, mm, let me start thinking about this a little more than just what's being fed to me. You know, I guess I would say that was the the best way is uh, the message is being told to me. I'm just believing at this point. I haven't really questioned much about it yet. Um, and then when my father died, I did start questioning it. And then when my mother threw us in the street, his mom, my grandmother took us in, which takes us back to the row home. And we lived with her. We went to, my brother and I went to community college for, I think we were with her for about a year and a half. Your suitcases must have been frayed. Dude, let me tell you, we wore the wheels off those little motherfuckers. And back then they weren't Pullmans. It was that vinyl strap and it would just fall behind you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so she ended up dying of a heart attack right in front of us. I mean, she. Your grandmother. My grandmother, my dad's dad. So now. I mean, your dad's mom. I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. That would have been a really fucked up story. <laughs> um, here's another opportunity for my mother to step in and nothing. And my grandmother, um, we lived with her. We went to community college. Always, you know, I felt like we were always doing the right thing, not only by us, but by our father. You know, we, what kind of sucks now is um, all of us are, are doing well. And instead of it being, my dad did a good job on paper. It looks like we had a good mother. And when in fact it was Excel in light of instead of, um, so I've, that sucks for my father. Um, what makes you think that, that, that the credit goes to your mom to, in other people's opinions, because all the people who've been brought in, uh, the wives, husbands of the people that we grew up with, they don't know my mother like that oh Her, and they think because your dad left the picture when you were 16 clearly must, you had a strong influence in your mother i see and that i and you know that well todd is close with her but derek and i are not that i mean i'm not close at all derek has kids now so she'll come like once a year to the birthday parties where i ha i do have to see her and i'm you know my brother's always i was like dude you don't have to worry about me at all i will never make 
any scene, I will never make my niece and nephew look at me in a negative way. I'll never make it about me ever. I'll just go play horseshoes on the other side of the property. I'm not going to bother anybody. And, um, my, oh, I forgot where I was. Sorry, I rambled. Uh, talking about who gets credit for. Yeah, the credit. Thank you. So, you know, her coworkers, her friends now, they just think that my brother and I are just shitty kids and sons. Because she filled their heads with. They don't know anything but what she's told them at all. You know, and the story she tell. Even my brother's challenged her on some things. She's like, I, I, that didn't happen. I don't remember that. She sounds like know. she has a lot of the, um, and forgive me if I'm sounding like a armchair shrink, but from what I've heard people describe of borderline personality, where their emotions are so overwhelming to them that they can't not lash out if they don't have you know, coping mechanisms or, or medication. And they truly almost like blackout when they go to that place of where the rage comes over and they don't remember saying things or hurt, you know, hurling things at, at people. And it just reminds me of the stories I've, I've, I've heard of that. You know, and it may very well be that that's exactly what she'll do when he tells her that didn't happen. Then she'll start crying and breaking down and, you know, then everyone starts feeling bad. And, um, but my, my grandmother, you know, my grandmother knew her when she was in love with my father, when he was in Vietnam and my mother was over their place nightly crying and crying, you know, so it was such a shock to her that not only were they getting a divorce, but that she was treating her grandchildren this way. And um, it sounds like something changed in your mom. Like there was like a chemical switch got flipped. And I, what is it? What is it? Postpartum? Is that what it is? It, yeah. And I always wondered. I've always wondered if, but I mean, I can't answer it. I wish I could. But then she had the baby, and then boom, Todd's the favorite. So something switched back. You know what I mean? Um, I also wonder too that. They weren't expecting two at the same time. And I can only imagine being in my mid to late 20s and here come two kids at the same time. That's got to be that's got to be hell for some parents that especially aren't expecting that back in, you know, the early 70s. Um, so my grandmother, we're living with her and, you know, she used to deny heart disease in the family as if you said someone was a drug addict or, you know, it was like, don't you say that. It was like, what? <laughs> We're not saying anything bad. Like, dad died of a heart attack. That is officially the start of heart disease in our family. And by the way, everyone who has died in our family, heart attack. No cancer, no car accidents, the heart attack. So we have history. But you can't tell an old Italian lady that you have fucking heart disease in the family. And we had just got... Because that might mean reasonable portions. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm breading my veal, damn it. And, um... We were sitting in the living room downstairs, and she used to she used to lay on her bed. She used to lay on her stomach across her bed for like 10 minutes, and she'd just call it, take, I'm taking five. And she would always keep the door a little open so you could see in. And I remember passing her bedroom, and that day, the door was shut. It's always, if you've ever had any moments like this in your life, if you really do go back and look, you're like, that was different this time. Mm-hmm. And I went downstairs. I'm sitting in a recliner. My brother's on the couch over here to my left. And we hear the door fly open and my grandmother says, someone come help me. And then just face, I mean, face first, right on her nose, broke her nose, knocked her teeth out. 
Um, and at the time, I was a lifeguard, so I did know CPR and first aid, but I was next to the phone. When I heard someone help, I was already dialing 911. My brother went up the stairs, you know, and he's freaking out. She's on her back. She's gasping for breath. I'm on with 911, and I told the lady, I'm like, listen, I know CPR because they don't want you to get off the phone. So my brother and I switch places. And I go up and I start giving my grandmother mouth to mouth and, you know, and I'm, and she just, she would gasp she would go <gasps> like that. Maybe every eight seconds it was. I was trying to count and do all my things at the same time. And, you know, part of me, I wanted to save her because I wanted to save her. But the other part was I always wanted to hang it over her head. You know what I mean? Like if she ever said some shit to me, like, I should have let you slip away, grandma. I should have let you slip away. <laughs> um, and... She was staring through me. I mean, literally through me. And the the fire department got there, the paramedics, and uh, they take her downstairs, and they they just throw all. Yeah, I mean, they just throw your shit out of the way to clear room. And I'd always been creeped out by the clear. You know that the I don't paddles. Know, the paddles always on TV. Just the lifeless float of the body. And here they rip her shirt open in front of us, and they're doing this. I'm like, oh my god, I can't believe this shit's happening. And then she started to get a lot of color back in her face, and she looked like she was going to make it. And my one of my cousins drove up. We had called, and he and my brother rode with her in the ambulance. I stayed back to put the house together, and then you have to give a report, and then I was going to drive. And when they all left, I went to the top of the stairs where she had fallen, and I started picking her teeth out of the carpet. And I looked up on the wall where she had this picture of Jesus. I always call it that senior picture, you know, the real nice one where it looks like he had sure. a, a blow dry and yeah. some, some blush on his cheeks. <laughs> and um, I was like, that, that's what you were, that's what she was looking through me at when she went out. Oh, wow. That's what it was. She was a religious lady. She had the rosary hanging on her, her bedpost. One of her sisters was a nun, Sister Carmina, who we were close with. Um, so we certainly had that religion coming in and I called my brother and I, he, he called actually when he got to the hospital and I said, do you think she's going to make it? And he said, I do. And then he called back and he was like, grandma didn't make it. And we were just, I mean, we were crushed. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Now the only other person that gave a shit is dead. Are you fucking kidding me? And we, my brother and, and how, I, and this was eight months after your no, dad this, test? No, she, um, this was, he was 89, we graduated in 91, this was like 92, so, so maybe like two, three years, two and a half years, I think it was. Uh, it was like April of 92. So you were 18. We were, no, we were in college, we were 19, okay. 19, okay. 20. We may, we okay. may have just turned 20, because we're in March, and I think she passed like right around Easter or something. And um, and what did what did your, sorry to, to cut you off, but I, I'm wondering, then where, where was your your faith? Did that change your faith it, it, again? It it did shift it again, yes. I still had faith. But it didn't erase it. It didn't erase it. Okay. It didn't erase it. Because part of me was really scared to let that go. I was scared to let that go. Especially now, because what if I am fucking wrong? You know, what if I do need this? And probably, I know we're going to church for this damn funeral. Maybe not let it go just yet. Mm-hmm. So, um... I just decided I'd always wanted to come to California. I knew I wanted to be here, but I didn't want to be here without a a, a backup plan. I didn't want to just come out. So I did well in community college, and I got uh, accepted to Cal State Northridge out here. And when I came out, (laughs) 
the day I was leaving, the Northridge quake hits. <laughs> and I'm at Miss Sandy's house. Sandy, who I told you was like my mother. I'm sleeping at her home, and she shakes me awake in the morning. And I, it's so early. I think I'm dreaming. She's like, you don't have a school to go to. And I was like, what are you talking about? And she turns the TV on. I'm like, you have to be fucking kidding me right now. The school I pick just got is the epicenter of the earthquake. <laughs> And I mean, it's destroyed. One of the biggest earthquakes yes, in California, California history. history. My wife and I had been here a week, by the way. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't get over it. And I just said, you know what? I'm not going to be deterred. I am fucking going. And I got up and I drove across country with a friend of mine. And I got here. So you got to experience the aftershocks. And some of the, there were still some quakes going on. Oh, but they, David, those were. They were nothing compared were, to what you Those were babies to. compared to, you know. I mean, I drove through. I remember seeing storefronts down on their face. I remember all the families in the park in Reseda with the National Guard on the perimeter protecting these homeless, you know, homeless because of the earthquake. Yeah. Um, the the pipes busting up through the street of just gas I, or fire. I saw an through. apartment building. a, a half of a dog sticking out from under an apartment oh building just like the front end of the dog oh. yeah it's awful um and it happened on mlk day which and early which saved a lot of people that a day. lot of people yeah. 431 january 17th 431 yeah yeah so that's you know we're getting up at 7 a.m so it had already been major crazy on the news and um i get here and again i'm homeless now because i don't have a dorm to go to and um, I remember, you know, one thing led to another. We don't need to get into all those stories. I met a person, got a place, then ended up, they started school in February. It was late. They they skipped spring break and all, and we just went straight through. And I mean, I had classes on a sidewalk under a tree and, you know, over here on uh, on the lawn and stuff. And I'm laying in my bed one morning and the fucking aftershock hits and I'm in a little twin bed and it moved me, I mean, halfway across the room and i was and i was like what the fuck and i ha and then i start thinking about my grandmother i'm like it's april now it's got to be coming up on the time my grandmother died and my phone rings and i pick it up and it's sister carmina who that is the first phone call she first and only phone call she ever made to me in my life and I said, sister, how'd you get my number? And, you know, we start talking. She goes, I called you to tell you that today's the anniversary of your grandma's death. And I was like, all right. You know, a nun just called me and I'm sitting here mm -hmm. thinking. About, I'm I'm actually awake, scared from this, this aftershock. And I'm thinking about this. And the phone rings. Did that bring you comfort? It did bring me a lot of comfort. I thought that was awesome because it was it was almost like my grandmother calling, you know, it mm -hmm. was the next best thing. And then when I went home that summer, sister passed. And I was naturally. like, naturally, why wouldn't she? <laughs> Heart attack. Man. She reached out to you with love. She's got to pay. <laughs> and I was just like, what? Hit, hit her <laughs> over the head with a pipe? <laughs> struck down by a bus couldn't have, she couldn't have gone gently into the no, night no she did not she went kicking and screaming man uh, but um what was really difficult too you know was when my grandmother died in april then my um and this is before i left for california then my um miss sandy's her daughter who was like a sister to me her 16 year old daughter was killed in june a couple months later and she had just sat on my lap crying for me 
in April. Like, I can't believe this just, I, I can't believe your grandmother, cause she knew, you know, they were close. I can't believe she's gone. Your dad's gone. And then this sweet little girl's gone. And then in October, my other grandmother died. And I was like, what the fuck? What a shitty fucking year. Not, I mean, you know, you think about that for yourself. And I'm like, actually, it was a shitty year for them, really, when you think about it. They're gone. Do funeral homes have frequent flyer programs? <laughs> they have a golden seat for me. Just like it's right here. Man. You get to go up to the you get to go up to the casket first. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say that I remember when we uh, my father was laid out. Where you know my grandmother when they opened the doors, I mean she attacked the coffin. We they had to grab her because it was ready to come down, and we just couldn't help laughing at that. I mean, I and that was her son. So, right? That was her son, yeah. and it's we're you know my brothers and I in the back like grandma's gonna rip dad out of that fucking coffin right now because they always let the family in like an hour ahead of everyone else. Does anything feel better than a laugh when you're in those 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 moments? Those no. are so beautiful. It was. Let me tell you. Thank you for saying that because. You know, those moments are full of moments, are full of people who don't know what to say. And the standard thing that if there's anything you need. And we had heard it so, you know, they did like a seven and nine this night and a seven. And we had heard it so many fucking times. My brother and I, were, we were like, mm-hmm. we're going to start saying shit. And people would come up to us and be like, listen, if there's anything, we're like, we could actually use a place to stay in about $50,000. And <laughs> their fucking faces. And they didn't laugh. You know, we're holding it. And yeah. they would leave. And we would go outside. Oh, you wouldn't tell them? So, no, hell no. Uh, they're like, well, wow. you know, we'll, 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 see, we'll see what we can do. You know, we can definitely come over and stay. We would go outside and laugh so hard. And I think my father would have certainly appreciated it. I remember sitting in the back of that corner and making grown men laugh. And it was a great fucking feeling because, you know, it wasn't just a relief for me, but for them as well. And all that tension and shit you don't know what to say is just comes out in laughter. And it ended up being um, something nice. I, you know, it was, it was, I mean, my father was sent off, right? We, it was a excused absence from school. They had police escorts. Like, he was popular and it was nice to see mm-hmm. the turnout. You know, it was pretty, it was pretty cool. When my mother-in-law passed away, who I deeply, deeply loved, she was more of a mother to me than, than my mom was. Um, we, came back to the house and thought let's let's watch movies of her let's remember her finally because she'd passed away from cancer and was oh. unrecognizable in the end and it was really nice and cathartic to remember the, the the woman that that we loved and that spirit and we cracked jokes about her because she was a terrible cook <laughs> she would mangle words you know she would use the wrong word and the wrong context and uh, we just had we it was it was really nice it was really nice nice. and then you have that moment where there's a slow-mo blink and you're just like (laughs) (laughs) just the rips you to shreds oh yeah yeah um so let's let's talk about internally like what all these things that happened to you what what led you to to go to therapy obviously something in your life was becoming unmanageable right yeah when when i first like you know my parents when we when they split they put us in like a family therapy and then when my father died uh, my mother was seeing a therapist and she just thought that i should go just me and i said you know what i am gonna go it's the first time as you know an adult so to speak that i can go my own thoughts and things and I started talking to this guy, and slowly but surely, I brought both my brothers in, and you know they co-signed all my stories and things. And 
then he and was he incredulous at the amount of abuse couldn't believe it and he's his co-worker was a lady who was seeing my mom so he would talk to her about it he's like look these are three kids with the same story they're not lying and the woman was like well she sort of tells me those things as well so they thought it would be good if they put the four of us in a room together with them, which they quickly, I mean, it was, it was, I mean, they asked us to be quiet. It got ugly fast in there. And when I left, the the therapist said to me, he's like, listen to me, you're normal. You're okay. Like your mom's fucked up and you're processing it considering you're doing a really good job. Stay on course, keep doing what you're doing. And then I didn't go to therapy for years and I was seeing someone and we split and the split just it threw me into a, a tailspin for a minute. And it's the first time it had happened to me. Um, I was in my 30s. and Seeing someone, seeing a girl, not a therapist. Yeah, seeing okay. a girl in a relationship, living together. It just didn't work out. And what I didn't realize is at the end of that relationship, it just brought up the end of a lot of relationships father grandmother not intimate relationships plus i would imagine being rejected by a female who well i wasn't rejected well i was rejected oh, in okay. the sense that i'm just assuming you get you, dumped i appreciate that paul I appreciate <laughs> the universe that. why would the universe <laughs> change up <laughs> it was it was a miserable rela- it was a negative miserable relationship that i knew i wanted out of it was um, was she abusive nope she just was you know, doom and gloom. Everything mm. sucked. It was dark. It was. Was she that way when you were attracted to her or was it minimized? That's what I change? learned. That's what I learned. That's what came out. But she was not like that when I uh, met her and we started dating. No, so she put up a good front, put up a good front, moved in. And then everything was, I mean, tears every day when I come home, like, where the hell is that? You know, where is all this coming from? And I quick re- quickly re- realized that you have a lot of past that you need to work on. And it just made me also check myself. And here's another, you know, failed relationship I'm in. And I just didn't want to be the person that always pointed the finger and blamed someone else all the time. I know I have my shit. Clearly I have my shit. And I wanted to go better understand it, better handle it, um, and learn how to lessen the amount of times that shit presents itself. Um, what did my therapist used to call it all the time? I can't remember now, but it's basically, you know, it's imprinted the way you learn to argue and the way you learn mm-hmm. to handle things all from the people that you fucking learn how to do that shit from. Um, and I went, bec- I, I mean, I really was in a, a place of, I don't know what the fuck I'm thinking, doing, I don't know. And um, I never turned, again, to a bottle or anything like that. I really wanted to. I enjoy uh, getting deep and thinking around things and about things. And I wanted to someone else to maybe sh- hopefully shed a light. You know, sometimes things are so fucking easy and they're right in front of your face, but you're always looking for something else. So you don't even see it. And he would say some things to me. I'm like, of course. How the hell have I not seen that in 30 some years? And um, where was the anger at at this point? You know, it, it it was high in high school. You were letting it out through sports. But then you get to be in your 20s and you don't necessarily have that daily physical way to, to let it out. Um, so 
was it coming out in inappropriate ways? Not inappropriate. Nope. I was. I've never been an abusive person myself. Physically abused. Never anything like that. Was it I, turned inwards. Where, where I, were you I turned it inward. It? Absolutely inward. And then I would also turn it to uh, stand up. Mm. And I remember some friends of mine telling me, "Hey, man." smile a little more you know <laughs> don't yell at them so much and i was like you're fucking right you're right and a smile after something said like that makes all the difference makes in all the, the difference that's what in my the world. dad used to say to me he would say smile more you got yeah. such a good smile that's smile a, more yep, smile more you it was such nice a smile. loving way of saying you're scary angry yeah out there and that and that i mean it's just again that's such a simple little thing to say to someone i was like yep and you know that that turned a light on and um but for therapy i just you know and the other thing too is i was always a little embarrassed because i would say to him i'm like i'm approaching 40 like and i'm always want to be straight with everybody i'm like just be straight with me do you think i'm a bitch for coming in here and bitching you know telling you all this whole childhood crap seriously i really had that in me and he was like of course not. I'm like, you don't think it's weird that I'm almost 40 and I'm sitting here boohooing about mommy shit? And he's like, no. Meanwhile, he's like, I need the client. But <laughs> I really did. I I did. That was a concern. What do you mean, I need the client? I'm saying he was like, no, I want you to be oh, here because I need to fucking that's client. What, that's yeah. what you were thinking. Yeah. Because uh, that would have been awful if he said that to you. No, he did not say yeah. that to me. He, he was He's great. He was really great. He was very beneficial and... Um. So what what are the, some of the things and I, I want to address the listener out there right now who is saying I experienced so much less abuse than he did and I am feeling so broken and stuck don't compare yourself to Ryan's story we all feel what we feel and remember that that you know Ryan had so many so much love from people other than his mom. Absolutely. Um, Because I think people that are raised when there isn't, there doesn't have to be abuse. It can just be an absence of support from anybody. Yes. And you're getting shit paid for and, you know, the, the, you're not getting thrown out on the street. You're, you never go hungry, but there's this feeling of, I want to die or whatever. I get a lot of emails from people or read surveys where they're like, I have nothing traumatic to point to, but I just feel so cut off from everybody. I feel so alone. And I just want to say to to those people, your feelings are absolutely valid. Absolutely. And just keep working on, on processing that stuff. But I just wanted to address those people out there and to say, do not minimize what you're feeling. That's right. And also, you know, one of the things I learned in therapy too, my therapist would tell me, you don't, you don't have to have two good parents. If you have one, you got a really good shot. And I had a great one. And I mean, this man literally died for his kids. And um, for me, he made such an impact and the people you know, my grandmother and her sisters and the people that really did show me love made such an impact that I carry it with me and I'm proud of it. I have a chip on my shoulder and I, I won't let them down. I'm not going to let someone who died for me down. I'm not going to be, you know. Then why do you let Jesus down? 
<laughs> well, we'll get back to Jesus' ass. Don't worry. <laughs> How badly would you have taken it if your dad had died when you made the wrong left-hand turn? <laughs> oh, dude. <laughs> I'd probably that, be in a padded room somewhere. That would have been a tough one. Out. Every <laughs> time you made a left-hand turn the rest of your life, you'd have been like, second oh, left, dad, dude, I'm second sorry. second left, you son of a bitch. Um. Again, to the listener out there, by the way, there are people who've gone through far more than I have and are, you know, just as adjusted and everything. So they're out there and you can, you can, you can help yourself. You can help yourself. You really can. Don't, don't do anything drastic. I, you know, and love finding love, love, finding people that will love you. That's why I always preach support groups because there's a, a love that is so special from people that have no reason to tell you nice things. They they don't, you know, one of my friends in the support group says to, to people that are new, um, you know, you're not important enough for us to bullshit you. <laughs> we have no reason to lie right. you. We welcome you. We're glad you're here. Um, and that is the most important thing. Instead of isolating and trying to figure it out yourself intellectually, get around some people that will love you, that have similar issues, and that love can can save you. It, sa- it saved my life. Yeah, it's absolutely true, and it brings me back to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, it took me years of being scared to let go of, of true religion, I, I would call it, because um, I, I still believe, but I don't believe, I no longer believe in the, a nameless, faceless, sexless, non, you know, human speaking entity in the sky i don't i don't buy that but to me that is love when i hear the word god i substitute love and my younger brother's a scientist so he's on he and i are on the same page when it comes to that um my everyone else in my family raised like i said catholic we had a nun in the family and my cousin who i'm very close to uh he goes by tim these days but he was timmy growing up so he's gonna be timmy to me forever uh his wife we get along great and she loves to ask me stuff like that and you know about god and what i believe and i i just believe that you know if you want to call god love great but love saved me it absolutely did and it continues to save me on a daily basis and it's accessible every single day everywhere that's something i know i i it's tangible i you can yeah. feel it touch yeah, it the religious god i could never i could never access other than intellectually and i think to to be saved we need something that we can access emo- emotionally and god bless people who can access the religious god emotionally yes. god God bless him. Yes. No pun intended. No pun intended. Uh, Love know. bless you. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever works for whatever you. works for you. As long as you're not harming anyone, including yourself, then whatever works for you. Yes. I mean, you know, um, it. I mean, if anything taught me that I don't need religion, it was the Catholic Church. Their their message is God is everywhere. Well, if God's everywhere. Why do I need to be under this fucking roof right now listening to you for an hour? I can go sit in a park and pray if I want. I can do whatever I want. You know, meditation, all those things to me are a form of, of quote-unquote prayer. Um, and I think they're healthy. You know, I really think that stuff's healthy. I, I talk to myself all the time. What do you say? Uh, well, I, I challenge myself. Um, I found myself one time, uh, I was driving back from Ontario, California, did a spot at the Improv. I was coming home like two in the morning and 
I found myself having a conversation out loud, which I've done maybe twice, um, with my father in the seat next to me, asking him what I would ask him now about what the fuck he was thinking, you know, what, how it affected him, um, all those things that I'd want to ask, you know, what he was thinking about what your, your life right now, getting back. No, actually getting back together with, yes. Oh, I see. Yes. What were you, what were you thinking when you found out your wife was cheating on you? When your wife said she didn't want your kids, when you were like, fuck, I'm a single dad with three boys working double shifts an hour away. How am I going to, what were you going? It's no wonder that shit killed him. It's no wonder that killed him. You can't take all that at one time. Um, but also back then, and I, I don't know if you know, uh, comedian Todd glass, he, oh, yeah. he had a heart attack and uh, a few years ago and he and I, he was just on our podcast and we talked about, cause his dad had one and we talked about how back then the simple little pill, if it had existed, they would be alive. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I would love to know. Like, I've always been jealous of my friends when they say, I'm going to the game with my dad, or I'm going to go shoot pool with my dad, whatever. And I'm like, I wish I could have. I mean, I know it, put it this way. If I, I know what 20, what I would do in a 24 hour time period if my father were to come back for one day. What would you do? Uh, well, we used to go crabbing in Maryland all the time. We used to take a boat out. We used to trot line them, not the little traps. We'd get out on the water. And it was one of the things I wrote that I absolutely fucking love because it was a connection that, I mean, I still think about this day. I'll actually tell you, if you don't mind, I would tell you a, a great story. Um, but the 24 hours, I would get up in the morning. We'd go crabbing. You're out of there by, shit, 10 a.m. with enough. You go home. You steam them up, you eat, and then, you know, we hang out, put a game on, play catch, and just catch up and talk. That's all I would do. Wouldn't do anything crazy. Let him see his grandkids, you know. Um, but we used to you go. Got, you got kids? I, I have a stepson. I'm Well, okay. I'm engaged, but I, I, you know, I consider him my son. Uh, I love him to death. He's 10. And then I have uh my my twin brother has a 7 year old uh my niece and a 5 year old um boy my nephew and then my younger brother just had a baby who turned a year uh in january what's the uh the crabbing story the crabbing story is we used to go in this boat all the time and then when we when my mother was kicking us out my father was friends with a state troop maryland state trooper named uh, mr bud and he was a big fisherman my dad he helped my dad with the boat tom law stuff it just a little fishing boat and he knew the way my mother was, and he came over one night, and he just gave us, I don't know what he gave us, maybe 900 bucks for the boat. He gave it me and my two brothers each 300 bucks. And he was like, I'm giving it to you because I know if I give it to your mother, you're not going to see it. And he said, now listen to me. This boat will be on my property for as long. If you ever want it back, you let me know. Fast forward, I don't know, maybe 15 years. Um, My brother... Derek is going fishing and he doesn't even live there anymore. He happens to go fishing where we used to live. He's walking a trail and there's some litter on the ground. He just goes to pick it up and it ends up being a little card from a map that, uh, it's a guy who makes, you know, hot spots for fishing in the mm-hmm. area. You can buy the map and he sees the name Bud Kellerman on it. And he's like, no fucking way. I wonder if this is Mr. Bud. So he contacts him 
And he's like, Mr. Bud, this is Derek Shigley. He's like, holy hell, how are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. He's like, well, I was fishing, found a thing on the ground. He's like, yeah, I'm retired from the forest now. I just make these maps, keep myself busy. And he said, I got a question for you. Do you still have my father's boat? And he said, sitting right out in my shed. And he's like, I'd really like it back. And he's like, what did I tell you? He's like, come on up and get it. And he went back. That man kept that boat up, stored it, never charged us a penny. And my brother paid what he paid us and bought the boat back. And it's sitting outside my brother's house right now. We're going to get it all jazzed up and take his kids crabbing. I can't fucking wait. Wow. Crazy. That's beautiful. It's one of, see, to me, that is, you know, that's worth staying around for. Shit like that. You know, that's love. That love will save you every fucking time. It's one of my, I can't believe the odds of that. And it ends up, you don't just get a boat back. You got our childhood and those, those moments and those times back. And now we're going to be able to go in that boat with his kids and take them out to do the same thing. And I, I can't wait to do it. That's awesome. That's awesome. awesome. You know, I can't, I, I, I love to challenge myself with questions and I can't really decide if my father dropping dead instantly was better or if he died a slow, long death. Obviously, it's better for him, but I would have been able to, to say so, anything, anything. You know, uh, um, I'll, I'll tell you this. I, unbeknownst to my brothers and I, when, I, when he was in the Hopkins in, uh, for his heart attack, he must have filled out some paperwork that, that said, hey, we have heart disease in the family. Any testing, future things that you do, please include my kids in this. Had no idea he had done that. And maybe six, seven years ago, I get a phone call from Johns Hopkins. This is back when I had an answer machine. And it was a message from some lady there who, you know, this is before they even kept shit in computers, who had kept this document, found me, and and I moved around a bunch. It wasn't easy. And left me a message that said, when your father was here, he filled out this paperwork. Um, and it's just simply if they wanted to know if I took baby aspirin, which I do and have been doing. And when I come back to Maryland to visit, would I like to come in, give blood, and be part of their test? And I can't tell you the emotional breakdown I had. It was happy and sad. I called uh, Miss Sandy, and I was like, that's as good as a fucking phone call from the grave right there. I was just going to say the same thing. It is. I mean, you're telling me in 19... Uh, this is... It's like you got another yes. helping of love yes. after you thought they were all doled out. Two decades later, practically, I get this call of something I didn't even know about because my father was... My father was not my grandmother and everyone else. Was like, we don't have heart disease. He was like, we fucking have it. I'm dying of it. So I want you to look out for my children. And I just, I was like, that, that phone call, that message of the piece of paper that he signed saying, look out for my kids, that little tiny thing, that's more than my mother has ever done for me in her entire life. And I was beyond overwhelmed. I called my brothers and they're not as, they don't get as deep as I do. Like my twin brother's like, yeah, it's, that's cool. You know, and I'm like, you're fucking dick. Like that's a call from the grave, you son of a bitch. And it really, that's really how um, I processed it and took it. And it felt every bit of that too. I was just like, whoa, here it still comes. You know, and hell, who knows? There might be something else 20 years from now, but that was pretty, that was pretty awesome. I want to end on that because yeah. that's a, that's a, such a beautiful 
beautiful moment that I don't think we can top that. Thank well, thank you for having me. I have I was looking forward to this and I thoroughly enjoyed this, Paul. So I, I, I really, really did too. It. I'm so glad you contacted yeah, me. Thank you. And uh you're inspiring. You really are. You as well, my friend. Thanks, buddy. Many, many thanks to to Ryan. Um it's amazing how powerful love is. Um it's incredible. Incredible how much hatred love can uh, can overcome. Uh, the power of love. I think Huey Lewis said it all, huh? Didn't he? Uh, before I jump into some surveys, and we got a pretty big stack, so uh, get yourself an easy chair. I want to remind you there's a couple of different ways to support the show. If you feel so inclined, you can go to the website, mentalpod.com. You can make a one-time PayPal donation or my favorite, a recurring monthly donation for as little as five bucks a month. Um We've been having people cancel their monthly subscriptions uh, or donations uh, lately, and um, I think it's because we've got advertisers now, but uh, if I could uh, assure you that um, the the advertisers are, um, there's no guarantee that that's going to continue or that it's, um, I don't know, I I guess what I want to say is I could still really use your your help with the the donations, so... um, Right now, I'm making a sad face. I'm making a, a, a frowny, and I've got both of my pockets turned inside out. Uh, but in all seriousness, um, could still definitely use um, donations. Uh, you can also support the show by um, going to iTunes, writing something nice, giving it a good rating, spreading the word through social media. And uh, if you're going to shop at Amazon, enter through the search portal on our homepage, right-hand side, halfway down. You can also, boy, coffee mugs, coffee and what was the other and t-shirts we got women's sizes too let's get to the surveys this is from what has helped you filled out by uh our friend who calls himself dorf on coke uh and about uh his anxiety depression self-hatred and self-harm he hits himself uh what helps him i'm not sure how healthy this is but i like to load up movies in my mind like they're drugs movies are emotions in a can they can change the mood and vibe of an entire day i've come to rely on my movies as a way of playing with my emotions so that i forget that we're all hurtling towards the same inevitability This is from the Shame and Secret survey, filled out by a woman who calls herself Blue Rose, and uh, she is straight in her 20s. Um, She was raised in a stable and safe environment, Um, was a victim of sexual abuse, reported one, and didn't report the other. I just wanted to read a couple of excerpts from her thing. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I'm a deeply intellectual person and can never turn my brain off. I can't even feel very sexually excited about a person who I don't feel an emotional attraction to and who I can't intellectually intellectualize being in a relationship with. For this reason, I think very often about having casual sex with someone I feel safe with, usually a fictional female roommate that I can have sex with regularly without any sense of ownership or exclusivity and without anything other than the fact that we care about each other and want to be emotionally supportive to one another. Uh, Realizing that loneliness and living without sex is often really emotionally difficult. I'm pretty sure I think about it this way because I am sexually attracted to women, but only romantically attracted to men. With men, I have always fantasized about being fucked against a bookshelf in a dark corner of a library. Um, I look forward to seeing you being discovered and somebody going, shh. 
what, if anything, would you like to say to someone that you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell my ex-boyfriend that his concept of being a gentleman is bullshit, that he loved his misogynistic ideal concept of me and never actually loved the person I am. I'd like to tell my ex-best friend who abused me that I still believe she could be a person of substance if she got some help and that I wish I could have helped her get better. I'd like to tell a boy who I went to school with that it would have been a pleasure to fall in love with him if I had had more courage and time to do so. What, if anything, do you wish for? To stop being afraid. Have you shared these feelings with others? Bits and pieces. I've never shared with anyone my sexual fantasies because I'm really worried that my desire to have a purely physical relationship with a woman and a romantic relationship with a man will come off as homophobic or like I'm using a woman. I'm a feminist and I'm very aware of objectification and want nothing to do with it. So I'm anxious about society's role in my sexual desires. I would say, fuck society's roles and go with your heart and what turns you on if you ain't hurting anybody. How do you feel after writing these things down? Like I'm more fucked up than I thought. Nervous about sharing. What would you like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Humanity is complicated. You are more than one thing. For every cowardly act or feeling within you, there is also a lion. Nothing that has happened has taken away your ability to be kind, intelligent, profound, or funny. Please believe that, or at least try. It is one of the most beautiful things that I've had somebody write in that uh, to to that question. Uh, this is from uh, Awfulsome Moments, my new favorite survey uh, from a listener uh, who calls themselves uh, "Suffering in Heaven," and uh, I believe she's she's filled out other surveys uh, for us as well. Um, she writes, it was Christmas time and I was about five years old. My mother had finished putting our Christmas lights up earlier that day and wanted to take a picture of the house. She stepped out onto the sidewalk and me and my drunk dad stood in the doorway. As my mom snapped the picture, my dad pulled his pants down and laughed. I was at face level with my dad's junk. I think my mom just threw the film away. I wish she kept it so I could made, have made a Christmas card out of it to show people why I am fucked up. That one is the very definition of awfulsome. This is from the Shame and Secret survey, and I just want to read this excerpt of it. It's filled out by Allie. And um, Deepest Darkest Thought, she writes, Sometimes I want recognition for the little victories. I know, what do you want me to give you a fucking medal? is something people say to each other, but the answer is yes. Yes, I do want a medal. When I managed to avoid a single major freakout, even when I could feel it coming, when I remember to try a coping technique to calm myself down, when I'm able to calm myself down instead of relying on someone else, I want someone to tell me they're proud of me, even if just for that, that I managed to get that far and they have faith that I'll be able to make it even farther. My issues aren't even that bad compared to a lot of people's. Just some uh, seasonal affective disorder and some anxiety, but mostly just regular old bad patterns. So I feel really guilty about writing that, wanting this when other people work so much harder to achieve even less. I feel like I don't deserve that sort of praise, given the relatively minor nature of my problems. I frequently feel like I'm just an attention seeker, and nothing's actually wrong, and I'm just being a big baby, so I really want that kind of validation. Well, let me tell you, I, I believe that you do need uh, a hug and validation, and we are sending it your way, myself and all the people on the forum who understand how you feel, and you're not a big baby. You're feeling your feelings, and they matter. 
And there is love in the world. And we're sending you some. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by um, a woman who calls herself Banjo-Kazooie. Love that name. She is gay um, in her 20s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, uh, ever been the victim of sexual abuse. Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. Uh, taken advantage of while drunk. I feel responsible, unsure of the extent to which I consented. So more than anything, I just feel confused and ashamed. I've said it before, I'll say it again. Nobody is responsible for what happens to them when they are drunk or passed out. Getting drunk does not give somebody else the right to take advantage of you. Um, have you ever been physically or emotionally abused? Uh, she's been both. Uh, my dad is a horrible dad. He physically abused me in small ways frequently and in large ways rarely. I think the worst was when he would drag me somewhere uh, if I didn't want to go. Also, he would threaten to do way worse than he ever did. He had a really sick sense of humor. At the time, I was made to feel that I was never good enough, that I was weak and a loser. I was the scapegoat child and always considered a liar and a brat. When my parents divorced, he was supposed to pay alimony and child support, but he but he didn't, even though he could afford it, which I wasn't aware of until I was in college. It was such a kick in the ass when I did find out that his greed made me go hungry and left me without winter clothes. Still to this day, I'm in touch with him, and he just fucking sucks. Boy, that is so similar to, to Ryan's mom. Wow. Uh, if you uh, have been abused, are there any positive experiences with the abuser? And does that complicate your feelings about them? Yes exclamation point in caps until i was in fifth grade when the worst instance of physical abuse occurred i thought my dad was the best coolest dad anyone could have he was cooler than other dads uh, on the outside my friends loved him and thought he was a quote big kid and he was hilarious they weren't wrong i wasn't wrong he was a very charming man i was confused about this from ages 11 until i was 15 and finally realized that persistent physical abuse can be more mild than whippings and punches. Deepest, darkest thoughts. From a young age, I was interested in the movies, TVs, books I saw that portrayed violent physical abuse or confinement. I say interested because I don't know what other word to use. I was too young to be sexual, though it became sexual later. I think I connected to those characters who were the victims at the time. I thought it was who were victims. At the time, I thought it was because they were experiencing something so awful I could not imagine, but now I realize it was because I was experiencing similar things. When I realized what BDSM was, I dabbled in BDSM porn, but was traumatized slash turned off by a lot of what I stumbled upon. Deepest, darkest secrets. I don't like sex. I just don't. A friend told me that I never really had sex because I never had sex with someone I loved. I don't know that happens to people, or I know that happens to people, but I just don't think it should happen to me for some reason. The only time I've ever had an orgasm was by myself with a vibrator and some kind of violent images, though the best for me are usually not sexual violent images. Believe it or not, I get really turned on by action movies. Um, doo -doo -doo -doo. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I don't really have any specific fantasies. I just have a big imagination. I want to know what it's like to be violently raped, to make love, uh, and to have a casual, emotionless one-night stand. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Dad, I know exactly how much money you owe mom, and you need to know what it's been like to live on what 
little we've lived on. Also, you're an asshole. Also, there's a 19-year-old at work who reminds me a lot of me at that age. If I could do it in a way that wouldn't set him off, I would want him to get a dictionary and look up the words bitter, entitled, and resentful and tell him that if he can let go, it's possible for him to be happy. What, if anything, do you wish for? A place to live with a yard so I can get a dog. A stable job that pays a living wage. Eternal love, happiness, and success for my friends and family. Have you shared these things with others? I haven't shared the history of my connection to violent media, but I've told a therapist about the abuse as well as friends. How do you feel after writing these things down? Like you're going to recognize bits and pieces of my story from other surveys I filled out. Ha ha. Seriously though, it always feels good to get this stuff out, which is why I wanted to fill out this survey when I heard you changed it a bit. Anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? My therapist told me to trust my instincts. That's easier than it looks when it comes to your instinct towards positive, positivity things. It's really hard for me to let myself be angry, hurt, stressed, scared, when that's the first thing that comes up, and it perpetuates it. If I'm angry, I get angry at myself for being angry. Self-parenting is huge. Treat yourself like the neglected, weathered, traumatized, battered person you are. Be careful, be aware, and most importantly, be in the moment and live simply. Thank you for that. From the What Has Helped You survey, filled out by Chaos, she writes, uh, she deals with depression, borderline personality disorder, and what helps her is singing, my dog licking my face, writing, playing tag or hide and seek with my neighbor's kids, walking around the city while listening to podcasts. Same survey, filled out by Tim, and uh, his issues are PTSD, depression, anxiety, isolation, and addiction. And what helps him? I've started playing music again. Years ago, I played guitar. After my issues developed, I lapsed in my playing. In the last year, though, since I started therapy, I found myself playing around again, playing to my mood. I have also picked up a few other instruments and working on learning to play banjo, fife, and harmonica. I always have my harmonica in my pocket now and made uh, work a lot more bearable and a great alternative to smoking. It has not helped my isolation issues much, though. Well, since he's in the room right across from you, why don't you reach out to Ken Burns? I couldn't resist. How do you not resist a guy that is learning banjo, fife, and harmonica and not make a Civil War joke? I dare you. I dare you. Um, That's awesome, Tim. I know the soothing comfort of um, having the passion to play music and and playing it. So in all seriousness, um, that's really cool. I wanted to read this survey because it is the most concise shame and secret survey ever filled out. Uh, It's filled out by a woman who calls herself me. Even her name is short. She's straight in her 30s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. She's been physically abused, emotionally abused, doesn't qualify in it or, you know, doesn't write anything about any of those. Um, deepest, darkest thoughts, kinky sex. Deepest, darkest secrets, kinky sex. Um, uh, sexual fantasies, group sex, being forced or raped. Um, how does that feel? Like a dirty secret. Uh, what would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? You're sick. What do you wish for? Shameless and free. Have you shared these things with others? Yes, it went fine. How do you feel after writing these things down? Okay. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Hello, fellow perv. Uh, I love when the surveys make me laugh. Um, 
This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by um, a transgendered, uh, uh, he is uh, female to male, um, so I guess you would say ma- male, yes, um, calls himself C. Martin Jones. Um, let's see, how old? Uh, in his 20s, bisexual, uh, romantically attracted to male and female bodied people, but not sexually. Uh, Raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional. Parents are very distant. Mom has a lot of untreated anxiety. Um, Sexual abuse, some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I've submitted to sex many times when I had no interest because I was afraid my partner would lose interest in me. While frequently I obligated myself, there have been several times where my partners made me feel guilty, including one time that I lay completely still and cried. Oh, that breaks my heart. Uh, He has been emotionally abused, never physically abused. Um, In one relationship, I was basically isolated from my friends and spent most of my time with my boyfriend. He got jealous of my sister and tried to turn me against her. I was living with her at the time. He would rage at me when he felt criticized or when I would encourage him to smoke less pot or drink less. Another boyfriend told me to only contact him when I had happy things to tell him after I confided that I was very depressed and lonely. I just moved from Italy to Maryland one month before my birthday and had no friends yet. Any positive experiences with your abusers? One of them was very sweet and thoughtful a lot of the time. He made me feel loved and special until he didn't. I'm not entirely sure if I wasn't also an abuser in that relationship. We were ultimately a really bad match and never figured out how to communicate properly. Deepest, darkest thoughts. I still believe strongly that I will die of suicide. I'm terrified of dying and its consequences, but I'm equally terrified of waiting for death to find me. I'm afraid that when my depression hits hard, I won't be able to be talked down and will try to overdose. I want to be less connected to my family because the sense of obligation I feel to them is sometimes overpowering and crushing. I hope you are talking to a therapist about that because that is a great place to start talking about that feeling of obligation and dread and being overpowered and dealing with those those primary relationships. Uh, deepest, darkest secrets. The night after I realized I was trans, I started drinking and taking Xanax two at a time. I'm not sure how many I took, probably 10 to 12. I'd been feeling intense anxiety, but I think after four, I just thought, fuck it. I'd wanted to just um, take all of my Xanax since it had been prescribed to me, and that night was the closest I got. I only stopped because I was too out of it to take more. I also self-harmed by branding myself pretty intensely that night. It's the closest I felt like I might kill myself. I haven't told anyone the extent of that night, and it still scares me to think what I might be capable of. Um, Sexual fantasies most powerful to you, sucking dick or oral sex in general. I feel really confident in my oral sex skills, so I feel like I would end up feeling good about myself. I don't want any sex to be reciprocated. I don't even want to be naked around other people. With porn, I really like seeing guys come inside women. I think because I wish that I had the ability to come like that. I feel fine sharing this, but I don't know how much I would tell people in my life, especially since the guy whose dick I'm particularly interested in sucking has let me know he thinks of me platonically. Also, he likes sucking dick more than getting sucked. Bummer. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd like to tell more people in my life that I love them and how much they add to my life. I'm not that comfortable expressing most feelings, but I'm getting closer. I want them to know because I do love them and my life is so much fuller with them in it. Oh, I really hope you do tell them. 
They would love to hear it. Um, I want to tell my parents that seeing them two times a year is more than enough, and I don't want to spend a week with them at Christmas. Our relationship is still pretty shallow, and my depression and anxiety usually spikes the longer I'm around them. Um, I say don't don't go around them out of out, out, out of obligation. Just try it. Just say for this year, I'm only going to contact them when I feel like it. Give yourself that vacation. You deserve it. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish that I didn't spend so much time worrying about and trying to predict the future. I wish that I could drink normally. The holidays make it so much harder to not think about booze. I wish I knew I was really going to be okay because I think I will. Have you shared these things with others? I think I'll be able to let my friends know how important they are to me in the near future. I don't know if I'll ever be able to let my parents know that I'd rather not spend time with them. You know what? They don't have to know that you don't want to spend time with them. Just don't spend time with them. Um, the guilt of maybe hurting them is too intense. They're nice enough people, though not especially adept at being parents. Um, how do you feel after writing these things down? A little unhinged. I worry when I'm feeling really sentimental that I'm going towards hypomania. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? There are people out there that want to love you and want to be around you. Putting work into therapy is the only way to see results. Don't settle for a therapist you don't like. Thank you so much for that. This is from uh, the Awfulsome Moment survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Michael Hung. Uh, he writes, A few weeks ago, my stress and anxiety levels were blowing through the roof because I felt overwhelmed with deadlines and upcoming audition dates. I realize now that auditioning for my dream musical music school stirred up core fears that I have of not being good enough, which tends to lead into feelings of worthlessness and depression. I was on the verge of a mental breakdown. I called the suicide hotline and the good people there were able to help calm me down a bit. Feeling that I was stable, I took my dogs outside to use the restroom. As I did so, my dog began eating his shit and would not stop as I commanded him to stop. My dog's shit-eating triggered me into a full-blown panic attack and mental breakdown. I remember thinking to myself in the midst of hyperventilating and sobbing uncontrollably, what an odd trigger to a massive panic attack. I laughed while I cried and freaked out. It was a truly strange moment that I will cherish, cherish for the rest of my life. Oh, apparently my dog didn't care for that. And why not follow it up? with another poop one. Uh, this is filled out by a person who calls themselves, uh, I believe it's a guy, uh, calls himself F-U-I-B-S. Uh, this is from Awfulsome uh, Moments. He writes, I suffer from debilitating irritable bowel syndrome. Over the last five years, I've been to myriad doctors, tried myriad meds, and had more scopes down my throat and up my ass than I care to count. It is not uncommon for me to be constipated for two weeks. Despite this, this medical world has provided me with absolutely no advice or medicine that has helped assuage my pain. Acting as my own doctor, I've realized one thing that helps uh, facilitate a bowel movement is running and running fast. However, once... I have to go, I have to carpe diem the moment. That shit can't be put on hold, pun intended. So one night I went for a run and bam, finally I was able to be able to relieve myself of the excruciating pain, pain of being backed up for 14 days. Holy shit, 14 fucking days. But where to go? I knew I couldn't make it back to my aunt's. So I found what seemed to be the most covert area in the upscale section of the city in which I was running. 
There was a colonial white house with a backyard uh, that had tall ferns all around it, thus providing some degree of privacy from the neighbors and the street. So I quickly dropped trowel and explosive cathartic diarrhea commenced. Sweet relief. However, no more than three seconds into the bomb movement, the security light went on. While crouched and still shitting, the family of the house came to this backsliding door. To say this picture-perfect family was revolted is an understatement. The presumed father opened the sliding glass door and yelled, What in the hell do you think you are doing? Are you an animal? I finished my business, much to the family's horror, pulled up my shorts and said matter-of-factly, I'm killing two birds with one shit by fertilizing your lawn, good sir. I then barked once and sprinted back to the safety of my aunt's home, never to be discovered. <laughs> oh, that is fan-fucking-tastic. Awfulsome. Beautifully awesome. Awfulsome. I just wanted to read an excerpt from this Shame and Secret survey and send this, uh, this woman a hug. She calls herself Shark Lady. And her deepest, darkest secret, the thing that is currently burning me is that I go through phases of being violent with my mentally ill, disabled child, never to the point of physical injury, but I do grab him roughly, push him around, get in his face, and just act very frightening and angry with him. It's usually when I'm just out of energy and self-control, when he is being especially difficult and I feel anxiety about our future. Here is the thing I want to say. I have no idea how to get help. I feel like I can't tell a counselor about this because they will be required to report to CPS. I know I am not the ideal parent for him, but I do think that most of the time I'm able to support him. Sometimes I just boil over. I go through long periods where I am peaceful and then dip into difficult times where I just can't handle it. It's a nightmare that leaves me feeling completely awful and I worry deeply about the consequences for my son. I have no idea where to turn. I'm sure there have got to be support groups for um, uh, parents who have mentally ill children. Uh, I suggest going to the website nami.org, N-A-M-I.org, and I know there are support groups uh, for that type of thing. And you don't have to get, to, to get too specific. You can just say that you lose your temper. Um, you know, you might be able to share with um, somebody in a one-on-one -on -one situation where you feel safe the, the details of it, but... Um, I would imagine there's going to be a lot of people in that support group that have lost their tempers too. And um, just don't don't tell yourself that you're a piece of shit or you're a bad person. Um, funnel that energy into into getting yourself the help that you and your your son deserve. Sending you a big hug. Um, this is from the being hospitalized survey, and this was filled out by. Um, a woman who calls herself uh, Delaware Hen. Oh, we all remember dancing to the Delaware Hen during Prohibition. Big bathtub full of gin. <laughs> Stick your elbows out and do the Delaware Hen. Oh, man. Ladies would do it till their bonnets fell off. Uh, she is straight in her 40s. Uh, why were you hospitalized? Uh, I've been in therapy a number of years off and on for 10 and was working at a stressful job, attorney for low-income folks, with a boss who was a toxic asshole. I had noticed my mood tanking, feeling hopeless, apathetic, starting to feel like I wanted to escape, and I discussed it with my therapist. I was not medicated at the time. I started to start having feelings and desires to swerve my little car underneath a tractor trailer uh, on the highway, and I was frightened by how much I did not feel or care 
how much this would hurt my loved ones. Even when I knew it was not a solution, I kept going there in my mind. Every day became a struggle, like trying to move around wearing one of those lead vests they put you put on you in x-rays. I went back to my therapist and told her, I think I need to see a shrink, as this was more than talk therapy could handle. She informed me that there was a six-week wake for an appointment with a doctor. This was a public clinic, which was all I could afford. I said, I'm not going to make uh, it six weeks. Whereupon, she told me I could check myself into the ER. After a few days, I was driving to work, and the urge came over me to swerve into a truck, and a truck was approaching. I pulled off the road and went straight to the ER and began the long process of getting more serious help. Describe your experience. The check-in through the ER was very long. It took four hours, like any visit to the hospital. I had to repeat over and over why I was there, my name, birth date, etc. I didn't feel much, only a sense of relief that I might actually get help to stop having these feelings. I was wearing a suit for court and a heart monitor. My general practitioner was checking me out uh, for panic attacks, and I hadn't showered in days, and my face was red and tearful. I gave them my fiance's phone number only, not my family's. He came to see me through the check-in process after a few hours and heeded my wishes uh, to only contact one friend at work and not to tell my family. I checked into the ER about 10 a.m. and was brought up to the ward at about 7 p.m. I was starving and devoured the leftover snacks. There was some discussion about keeping the heart monitor on as I might strangle myself with it, but I was feeling less agitated uh, or was that the Ambien? So they let me wear it. He showed me to my room and I took a shower and slept. The next day involved meeting the others on the floor and seeing an array of very seriously ill people who were non-communicative to a woman brought in after drunkenly assaulting her boyfriend who seemed to think it was all a big joke, to older ladies suffering a little dementia. Once on the ward, everyone's goal seemed to be to get out as soon as possible. What we ordered from the cafeteria and how much we ate was recorded. Blood pressure was taken several times a day. I met with the shrink and did not like him. He was very full of himself and remarked that his sister was mentally ill and she ascribed uh, it to a harder upbringing than his. Uh, a cultural thing apparently, but did I know why he didn't suffer any mental illness? Why it was because he didn't have her upbringing and I was sitting there thinking, yeah, and good for you, doctor, no illness. Your life is charmed because it didn't have shit to do with me. But away from work and in a place I knew I'd get help, I was able to see past this asshole. I knew I could find a better shrink outside of this place and I did. Apart from meals, med checks, uh, blood pressure testing, there was the occasional group therapy, visits from my fiance and a bunch of VHS tapes of movies we could watch. Oddly, the movies were mostly series movies, but not all of them. Sister Act 2, but not 1. Karate Kid 1 and 3. Jaws 2. I had my fiance bring me jigsaw puzzles and books. The puzzles were a huge hit. Even one of the unresponsive patients sat with us and put pieces in. Never said a word. I left the puzzles there when I was released. After I got out, I finally told my family. My family was one of those, there's nothing wrong with our family type of families. It occurred to me that the systemic denial of our family's issues was a huge part of the problem and that I could help it to continue by remaining silent or I could buck the system. So I bucked hard. I told them where I was, why, and brought it up at every opportunity. I flatly refused to let them forget it. I told so many stories and anecdotes 
that began back when I was in the metal ward just to force them to hear it. I combated their repeated attempts to fall back on the denial reflex by repeating over and over the very thing they wanted to deny. I felt like a dick, but deep down, I knew it had to be done and it paid off. I can talk about my mental illness and my medications around my family and other people like it was any old regular medical condition. What's more, most of my family members opened up to me about things that they had been through or the mental illness in my family tree. Some of family members opened uh, some of it quite serious or their own thoughts that they might need to talk to someone. My being a stubborn dick and coming out about my hospitalization and my illness actually brought my family to a point where we can talk about our feelings more. Sure, there's still narcissism, conflict avoidance, and passive aggression, but we are in a much better place now, and I'm glad I got the help I needed and came out about it in the end. That is so awesome. That is so awesome. Good for you. Um... This is from the Awful Some Moments survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Special Agent Dale Cooper. Um, he writes, my good friend's husband had been hit and killed by a car. The morning after it happened, I flew to be with my friend. When I arrived at the airport, two plainclothes police officers were awaiting my arrival. Because I had purchased a one-way ticket and was barely functional, at the time of purchase I had been reported as a suspicious traveler. After crying at the police officers and explaining my situation, they kindly escorted me through the remainder of the airport. I spent the next few days helping my friend deal with making life move forward as well as setting up a memorial and handling phone calls. Since the state they lived in did not require... Uh, recognized gay marriages, and his husband's family was not supportive of the relationship, there was a lot of anxiety around his husband's last wishes being carried out, which included being cremated. Thankfully, they had filled out the appropriate legal paperwork, and his husband was cremated. As my friend and I drove home in his Toyota pickup, his dead husband's ashes in a box in the middle seat between us, hours of tense sadness melted away. I turned and asked if he thought his husband would mind my using him as an armrest. We laughed, the first time for both of us in several days. We spent the rest of the evening asking his husband if it was okay that we used him for various tasks, like holding a stack of paper down, using him as a bookend, or a nice place to rest our beer. That is awesome. Thank you for that. This next one is from the uh, Vacation Arguments survey filled out by Dan, who uh, writes, let's see, I got really sick at Disney World at age nine and my parents took me to the clinic at Disney. They asked the nurse on duty if they could leave me where, leave me there while they went through the park with my little sister. The nurse said no. They had a long fight with her, but they eventually sneaked a wheelchair out the door with me and wheeled me around the park while I was puking in bags and pretending I was mentally disabled to get to the front of the rides. When my dad would see people's awe face, he'd gently stroke the side of my head and kiss on my head and tell them, he's our special little guy, and their hearts would melt. My family to this day still says it was the best time at Disney, even though I barely remember any of it. That is fucking awful. That could be an awfulsome moment, too. Uh, and finally, I want to read uh, from the Happy Moments survey filled out by a guy who calls himself every he's uh 18 either 18 or 19 and he writes ever after having a very violent metal breakdown in which i screamed for hours sobbed hit my head against anything and everything that was in my way 
cut myself twice and broke my mom's blender when it fell off a cupboard I struck with my head many times, I decided to go online to talk to one of my internet friends. And despite how confused, out of my mind, and fucked up I was, she decided to call me. We had a voice call while I was sobbing and desperately trying to explain all that happened that night. And after that, she turned on her camera. She tried making me laugh, but since it didn't seem to work, she stroked her webcam. And that made it seem as if she was actually there with me, taking care of me and making sure I was okay. Seeing her face and what she was doing soothed me and calmed me down. And I swear to God, I will never forget that moment. It was one of our most intimate and loving moments we ever had. And what a beautiful what a beautiful moment to end on. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you guys for listening. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, I just want to remind you that you are not alone, not even close to alone, and that there is hope. You just got to reach out for help, no matter how difficult it, it feels. And thank you so much for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.